2020 was one of the hottest years ever, and it brought to an More end the warmest More than 15,000 scientists are sounding an alarm about climate change. They call it a... Says the effect of global warming is so severe, the region is actually shifting to a different climate. They've also found they had underestimated the rate of change, Ford meaning experts say that we have, have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. It 2020 was the hottest year on record. are not made and made soon, there will be irreversible damage to the planet. Hello and welcome to My Green Podcast, the show about accessible, sustainable living. I'm Jarvis Smith. I'm Katie Hill. And I'm Joe Wood. This is the show where we look at how to live a sustainable, ethical life without drastically altering your lifestyle or blowing up your bank account. Everything from quality green products and where to get them to easy changes you can make now to make the world a healthier place. Later in the show, we'll be joined by veteran campaigner Jonathan Pellett. But first, let's have a look at some of the recent green news. Almost two-thirds of all branded plastic and packaging pollution in the world's oceans can be traced back to just 12 companies. Yes, 12. The charity Surfers Against Sewage issued a report that showed that Coca-Cola, McDonald's and Tesco's were just some of what they labelled their dirty dozen. No surprises there. Oh man, where do we even start with this? Just 12. Just 12, yeah. This was a huge citizen science project. There were, about, there were almost 4,000 volunteers and they were all collecting branded items over 11,139 miles. So this was the UK's <gasps> biggest ever coordinated cleanup event. So I, for one, am not guilty to this because I haven't drunk Coca-Cola or eaten McDonald's for a very, very, very long time. We need that job, we, we need but, you know, I mean, just to, for these big brands to be called out in such a horrible way is, is just like, I mean, hopefully people will wake up to the fact that these companies clearly do not care about us or future generations, right? But I, I don't know whether we, I mean, are we right to blame, I'll play devil's advocate for a minute here. I mean, these, these are bits of litter that are being dropped on the ground by people who have bought products. So, you know, Perhaps McDonald's and Coca-Cola and, you know, whoever else is Tesco's on the list as well. Um, there are quite, there are Mars, Aldi, Carlsberg, Heineken, PepsiCo. They're just massive companies, aren't they? Yeah. So people obviously buy more of those products. So perhaps there's just more of that waste because of the, the volume of sales. Yeah, but surely so it's their responsibility. Well, surely it's their responsibility yeah. to create that's, packaging that is biodegradable, right? Absolutely, that's, that's, yeah. That's the key, isn't it? But who's to say that these bits of rubbish weren't picked up the day after they were dropped? Nothing can biodegrade that quickly. Surely we've got to put some onus on the person who dropped it. No, absolutely. So the people, I mean, yeah. And you know what? It's funny with the staycation stuff that's happening, been happening this summer. You know, people are flocking to beaches and beautiful, um, you know, heritage sites and just leaving all their rubbish behind. I mean, that's just like, come on, people. And what we... happened to that campaign when I was a kid? Keep Britain tidy. Yeah, we used to. Is it still going? Yeah, I think so. We should really bring that back big time. Look after our country. Have love for our country. Have love for the planet. Yeah. yeah. Look after it. Make it look beautiful. I can't understand it. 
Yeah, it is respect because you wouldn't litter your own, you know, living room with the same amount of onus that you do when you go out to a, you know, to have a barbecue or to the beach or something like that. So it is, it's about treating the planet like it's our own home, right? Well, it is our own home. Yeah, well, of course it is, yeah. And there's, there, are, there are ways to incentivize people as well not to drop litter. And I think the charity Service Against Sewage is calling for, it's among many, many charities and campaign groups that are calling for what they're calling an all-in deposit return scheme. So this would mean that you pay an upfront cost for your bottles, cans, whatever it is, and then you get a deposit back when you return them to be recycled. So this Good is- Good idea. A, yeah, it's a great idea. And it would massively cut down the amount of waste that is being dropped. Um, it's been successful in loads of other countries. The, I think the UK government has agreed to it to a certain extent, but we're just kind of fiddling around the edges of what's actually going to be included within the system. So whether it's going to be all drinks containers and bottles and everything else, or whether it's it just going be, to be a certain... It should be everything. Yeah, that's what, that's what an all-in um, DRS would be. So that's what these charities are calling for. And if we did have one of those, the estimation is that about well, more than half of the pollution from that dirty dozen companies would be captured through that kind of scheme, including 80% of the top polluter Coca-Cola's products. Mm. So, you know, it, it would make a huge difference. And it would, I think we do have to accept that there is a responsibility on the people dropping the litter as well as the companies making yeah. the products. Well, you know what would be great is if, if, if we could galvanise and mass mobilise an organised boycott. So, you know, if just for yeah. a week people stop buying any Coca-Cola brand... That would pretty much, probably in about two weeks, put them out of business. I mean, it, you know, it'd be be fairly quick for them to go out of business if we didn't. Look buy what product. happened with that footballer who moved the Coca Cola bottle that was in front of him uh, when he was about to do a speech. He moved it way out of camera shot, and their sales dropped. Yeah. Yeah. For just that one movement. Yeah, mm. it says a lot, doesn't it? I mean, you think about it, Coca-Cola, you know, it, it nearly, certainly back in the day, everywhere you went, you'd see their brand everywhere. You know? So yeah. they haven't really dominated. And maybe it's just time for them not to be such a domineering business. Maybe it's yeah. time for them to have had their day. We stopped buying their products. We put them out of business. And boom, we, we support, you know, organic Coca-Cola. Especially when you know how much sugar goes into one can of Coca-Cola. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so unhealthy for every anybody to drink those drinks. It's yeah. just unhealthy. Yeah. It's bad for the body and that sugar, white sugar like that, mm. it's just, it, it causes all sorts of illnesses. And yeah, at the production does. level as well, I mean, the Coca-Cola plants all over the world, they have a massive, massive impact on the water table of the areas that they're, that they're operating in. Um, there was a huge, I was out in Dehradun in India when there was a big campaign to stop a Coca-Cola plant from being built there for that very reason. They were so worried about agriculture and farming um, because they just said that there'd be no water left for anybody because Coca-Cola mm. would take it all to make yeah. the Coca-Cola. Oh it's like, why, <laughs> what kind of backwards logic is that? It's just crazy. It is crazy. I'm always about grassroots. So people, this is an opportunity for you to just to make a decision to drink something, maybe just water rather than having processed water that's turned into Coca-Cola that's full of toxic ingredients. We're doing just quite a lot of Coca-Cola bashing here, but, you know, they're not the only ones. And I Pepsi. just do wonder. <laughs> Pepsi, yeah, yeah Pepsi. Pepsi. Don't forget Pepsi. <laughs> but, you know, Tesco, Tesco, Heineken, Aldi, you know, it's not just a, a fizzy drinks problem. Yeah, this is kind of, this is just a fast food problem, isn't it? It's yeah, just it is. a, 
it's just a single use disposable culture that we've got and I do honestly believe that if it weren't coca-cola it'd be something else even if we're all drinking water you know if that water comes in plastic bottles people if you're inclined to drop a coca-cola bottle on the beach you'll be inclined to drop a water bottle on the beach won't you it's no different no no absolutely okay so on to some happier news we had world lion day recently on the 10th of august and the conservation organization tusk organized the tusk lion trail so we'll probably all remember the rhino lion trail i think that was back in 2018 these gorgeous art installations a, a trail of um oh sculptures. yes the elephant yeah. they did an elephant one didn't they around uh, the and city this- of london this one is it's a lion trail to support African conservation. So they're oh, on the streets nice. of cities all around the world from Bristol and Edinburgh to New York, Sydney, Nairobi. And you'll be able to see them until the end of September. Um, cool. They've all been kind of individually curated by artists. from. from I, want, I want a lion. How do we get one? Well, that's Joe. Oh, well, uh, uh, yeah, ask me. I know Charlie Mayhew, who started Tusk. And uh, we went, me and Ronnie went out to Africa in Kenya years ago to save the rhino. And Mm. um, uh, we did a whole hello shoot. And we met these great, I can't remember his name, but he was a lion man. You know, he he kept an eye on all the lions around. And one morning he said, you will fancy coming out with us. We're going to go and dart a lion. I think his name was Ian. He found the lion, he darted it, and we watched him slowly go, oh, pass out. And then he said, okay, come on, we're going to go and stroke his paw. Wow. Oh my God, it was massive as well. It was huge boy. Oh, it was wow. so beautiful, this lion. It was the most amazing thing I ever did was to stroke this real lion. Wow, wow. And was, it, was it snoring? Was it just tranquilized or? Yeah, it was, was it just kinda... totally tranquilized and wow. fast asleep. And so we had a few minutes we could touch it and feel it. And then we had to jump back in as he started to wake up. But he tagged it and, you know, it was it was extraordinary. Amazing. But Charlie, May- Charlie Mayhew's such a lovely guy. He's been working to save the elephants, the rhinos, and I suppose now the lions, for endlessly for years and years and years. And what a hero. Still- I've still got his number. Ronnie does a lot for Tusk, actually. He's a patron, isn't he, of Tusk? I think he's... Yeah. Um... That's amazing, Joe. What a cool story. So, so yeah. these are going to be... Presumably, how, do, how does it work? So they, the people do the, they do the trail and then they contribute donations and things? Is that what it is? It's like people could donate... Uh, I don't know. Or, or do, they, do they sell the lions off at the end? They definitely them auction off? them, don't they? They auction yeah. them, yeah. yeah. And it's just a really yeah. fun... It's a lovely interactive experience for, for everybody in the family. Oh, um, I'd like to go and see those. Yeah, there are 25 in London, I think. You can follow the trail. All, they've all been created by amazing artists from comedy, music, design, film, theatre, you know, loads of celebrities have, have put designs forward. Um, and, and yeah, it's just to raise awareness and to, to get some cash for, for African conservation. And oh, brilliant. So that, it's a lovely thing to do with, with the kids if you're, if you're around any of those cities. I, I, I'm going to go and have a look at that for sure. Yay, we love that. Thanks, Katie.
So it's now time for our regular feature. Let's talk about six. Let's talk about six. Six, baby. <laughs> Six easy steps anyone can make to lead a more sustainable life. And today we talk about our step six, how we holiday. Oh, wow. Very important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a really interesting one because when we thought about these six steps that any individual can take, it was a time when a lot of people were traveling abroad and going on holiday and these, you know, these short or long haul flights. You know, the impact of flying is obviously huge because it's massively funded by the, you know, uh, underwritten, if you like, by the fossil fuel industry. The carbon emissions are huge. But we've had a pandemic Mm -hmm. and that has stopped people flying. And so people are holidaying in really completely different ways. I mean, we are actually in the perfect scenario when it comes to reducing carbon emissions around holidays. Um, So I guess it's that we've been kicked into action. Uh, Can we keep committed to you know, staycations and, you know, traveling in a different way. I do need to take issue. I think I need to take issue a little bit with this whole idea of staycations because people are saying, when people are saying staycations at the moment, they mean that that you've just stayed in the UK, but it's still a holiday. (laughs) That's still a holiday. Staycation used to be you're at home. Like you're not venturing outside of your house. That's yeah. And why has it now become a thing that a staycation is just not leaving the country? That just speaks so much to what we our insane obsession with traveling abroad for these kind of package holidays and these cheap deals and quick Ryanair flights and other short haul flights. But what is wrong with staying in the UK? There's some amazing places to holiday. There's Cornwall, there's North Yorkshire where we are. There's, you know, there's Norfolk, there's Scotland. There's just so many amazing, yeah. beautiful places. Isle of, Isle of Wight. Devon. I mean, yeah, the list, the list what goes is on wrong on. with us that, that means that we don't see UK holidays as a holiday? Why are we calling them staycations? Yeah, they are holidays. True. That's all that we used to do one, two generations ago. We'd all be going to the coast. It's true, because when I was young, I mean, you know, we we didn't go abroad. You just didn't. No, I didn't either. You know, no, we used to go down to, go. to Ilfricum, you know, yeah. every year without yeah. fail. And wasn't it an amazing holiday? Yeah, oh, brilliant. brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. You wouldn't yeah. think it was a second rate thing, but for no. some reason now people have started calling it staycations like it's a second rate break. It's awful. Yeah, it's true. It is awful. And you know what's amazing about this, actually? And I don't think many people really think about this, but we all work really, really hard to earn our money, to save up, to go on holiday. And then, um, and I know this sounds a bit UK centric, but then we, then we take all that money to another country and spend it in another country. So it's like, we're, we're actually falling into a massive deficit by, by holidaying abroad. It would be you know, quite intelligent for us as a nation to be able to feed that money back into our local economies and really support you know, the growth of, of our industries here. Which so you know there is a kind of bit of education around it too. So I'm really glad you pulled up that staycation thing, and let's think about you know yeah. we can go and spend holidays in places that we absolutely love and feed that economy and feed that town and that community um, and put the money back into the systems, and then they can use that to make it a better environment for, to go on holiday. So it's a it's a really nice way to do things, and it's also less stressful as well. Like, I don't know, but I just feel like the whole thought of going to an airport going through it's just it's just stress packing and all that yeah. kind of it is stressful it and is. you do come back from it feeling like you need another holiday to get <laughs> over the stress of the that the holiday created but a uk break you get longer because you don't have the travel yeah. on either side of it you yeah. know you get much more time having a break but you don't get the weather 
Well, this is what I was just going to say. But actually, Joe, with the with the rising of temperatures, you know, England is one of the lucky countries that the temperatures won't rise to uh, an uncomfortable temperatures very quickly. They certainly will in 50 to 100 years. But, you know, we're quite lucky in the UK that as the temperatures do rise, it will actually give us you know warmer weather that we'll be able to handle whereas if you're going off to you know some of those hotter countries naturally hotter countries they will be just unbearable you won't be able to go out and lie in the sun because it would just be too hot you won't want yeah. to you'll want to go to cooler places the thoughts of yeah. a cool breeze on your face will be like that will be the new holiday <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah white skin so you, yeah. you know and and uh <laughs> Cool air. <laughs> we were, we were, maybe the tan will go out of fashion. Yeah, again. There's a lot to be said for that, isn't there? It's like, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's just the circle of, of life. As our five-year-old daughter says, you know, everything goes through a circle of, of life. And that, that's kind of what's happening now is there's this new, new way of doing stuff. So, yeah, but, I, you know, I love that fact that holidays should be holidays and not staycations. So... Uh, we, we had a little trip up to Robin Hood's Bay. We bought a trailer tent. Um, we stuck it on the back of the car and we went and just stayed in our own trailer tent on a campsite. And it was just amazing. In fact, Vivi today said to me, Daddy, you know that place that we went to? Can we go back there again? So she absolutely loved it. And do you know what? Also, it was three generations. We had your mum, we had us and we had a 13-year-old, a five-year-old and a six-month-old and every oh single one God. every single one of those people on that holiday had the most amazing time. It's so true. It was real yeah. quality time, wasn't it? They no discovered devices, crabbing. No TV. <laughs> no TV, yeah. We saw, we, we saw... uh, I'd, like, I'd like to go up to the Lake District. I haven't been there for years. Well, come and, come and visit us on the way yeah. and then we're only an hour from the Lake District. So come and hang out with oh, us. You're only an bit. hour? Yeah, yeah. I mean, not, I and mean, then that's to Windermere. You're best to go, obviously, a bit further beyond Windermere to get the real beauty of, of the Lake yeah. District. But yeah, let's do it, Joe, and we'll bring our tailor right. tent. Road trip. Yeah. Yeah. Road trip. Okay, <laughs> I, I'm good at camping out. I love that. Yeah, we do. We do. It's, I, just, I just love the whole kind of getting back to basics. You know, I love lighting a fire. I love yeah, the, you know, I, lo- I love not washing for a few days, you know. Like... Yeah. Yes, yeah, good for you. It's good for your skin, good for your yeah. hair, not just your natural oils. Yeah, yeah definitely. All right, I'm definitely. coming up there then. Cool. Oh. All right, let's get a date in the diary. <laughs> Coming up next, Joe and Jarvis talk to today's very special guest, Jonathan Horrit. Our guest today is co-founder of Forum for the Future, is a veteran campaigner and an eminent writer, broadcaster and commentator on sustainable development. Welcome to My Green Podcast, Jonathan Porritt. Jarvis, it is a delight to be joining you today, that's for sure. I'm looking forward to it. Well, thank you very much. I mean, you are, as you know, a personal uh, hero and a a legend in, in my world. And so I'm really looking forward to this interview. I mean, the first obvious question is, is, you know, you've been an environmental activist for 
well, is it nearly 50 years? Gosh, that, I mean, that sounds such a long time. That's amazing. You know, and, that, and that's including stints with Friends of the Earth and the Green Party. So the big question for me is how and when did it all start for you? What was that, what was that wake up call moment? Yeah, well, it is nearly 50 years, which I guess means I do earn my title as veteran, as it were. Um, but the, but the, the start of it all wasn't actually necessarily an environmental impulse. It was actually a more education. I was teaching in a comprehensive in West London and started to think about the environment in which many of those kids were living. And it wasn't a particularly good environment, that's for sure. And bit by bit, I began to get involved in thinking about how to extend their opportunities and taking them to see what life was like in rural areas and getting involved a bit in understanding more about food and energy. And that got me much deeper into the practicalities of thinking more about the environment. And I happened to get involved with the Green Party at exactly the same time. So all these things came together. You know the way it is. And it's funny how these uh, connections suddenly make complete sense in a way that before that was just all a bit incoherent. Yeah, interesting. I see, I see, that's new to me. I just always kind of imagined you to be this, you know, this kind of eco-warrior from, you know, from, from a toddler. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't quite like that. No, it, although I did, I did have the privilege of planting a hell of a lot of trees when I was um, in my late teens. I was living in New Zealand at the time, and that got me close to the, to the earth, as it were. So that was the other element. And that, I suppose, was pretty important as well from the point of view of why would I join Friends of the Earth, as it were? Well, because I was in quite close contact with the Earth at that time, and I thought being friendly sounded like a really nice idea. Ah, lovely, lovely. <laughs> oh, well, that's great. And I mean, you know, as part of that journey, and obviously Friends of the Earth was a, was a big moment, um, yeah. you spent nearly a decade advising the government um, as, as the chair of the UK Sustainable Development Commission. I mean, did you find that experience productive or was it quite frustrating? <laughs> it was certainly instructive, as in I only ever really properly engaged with government uh, in terms of lobbying as director yeah. of the earth or whatever else it might have been. So I'd only ever seen it from outside. And to be appointed then by Tony Blair as the chair of the new Sustainable Development Commission, which was a government body, independent of government, but funded by government, reporting to, to uh, him and to ministers, was absolutely fascinating. And of course, I was completely new to that side of it. So I found it a revelation, I have to admit. Yeah. I did enjoy it, but boy, the, the work involved in getting governments to move to do what to an outsider might seem to be absolutely bloody obvious. And then sort of getting other bits of the government machine to understand why this will also be supportive of what they're trying to do. Because sustainable development isn't about the environment. You have to engage with dozens of different agencies and departments because it cross cuts the whole of what we're trying to make happen in the economy and society in governance terms and so on. And doing that joined up stuff across government, I'm telling you. I still bear the scars of that. Um, yes. By the time I'd done my nine years, I was thinking, yep, that's been a really, really good experience, but I am quite pleased it's now coming to an end, to be honest. 
Yeah, yeah, I can I, I can empathize with that. I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just just a look at the state of the decision making. Um, yeah, just it's it, you know stupidly complicated. Yeah, and and slow. That's the other problem. And yes. we're you know in a in a climate emergency, in a ecological emergency, the degree to which things have to move fast is is still a real problem to people in government. Yeah, yeah. Well, that brings me nicely onto your latest book. I mean, you know, it's it's beautifully titled Hope in Hell, um, which yep. suggests both positivity and something absolutely terrifying, which we both know um, that, 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 you know, that stands true if the climate science is correct. But what, what, what did you most want to say in the book? I mean, I, you know, what, what was it for you? It goes back to thinking about young people, to be honest, because in 2018, I was aware that things were getting worse and worse from the point of view of the climate impacts, the science of climate change. And this was already having a marked effect on young people. And there was a sort of sense that older people, older generations were saying, oh, gosh, we're really sorry we haven't done so much about this. But hey, over to you, because, uh, you know, you're the generation that can really sort this out. And I thought to myself, this is just outrageous. You know, having done as little as we have done, now we're kind of looking to young people mm. and saying, yep, it's now your call, as it were. And for me, this is not an acceptable way of moving things forward. I honour the role that young people have in this movement because it is unbelievably important but it's not an excuse for us in any way to step back and stop doing what we should be doing so i wrote the book essentially to say it is not too late to do what needs to be done but we're going to have to come up with a completely different way of working across generations with young people and older people uh, particularly grandparents or that age group if you like mm. because otherwise we're not going to be powerful enough in the opportunities we have to shift those decision makers to shift government to shift business to shift capital markets investors and so on we've got to work more effectively together and it just came together through that lens to demonstrate there are reasons to be hopeful about this but we have got to work better than we've done, been able to do in the past yeah gosh i mean it just makes me take a deep breath just even tuning in to to, to that complexity and you're absolutely right i mean what I'm reminded of is, is you know, in other times when we didn't live in this kind of frag fragmented uh, state that we do now, you know, we would we would be more of a tribal uh, kind yeah. of group, and we would rely on you know the wisdom of the elders and the the vibrancy and the you know the the passion of the youth, and and there was this, this quite quite harmonious uh, relationship in in, in societies um, which we've lost. I mean, what what's been I mean, since writing the book, because obviously it's been out for a while now, have you have you seen any uh, upward trend or responses or or you know yeah. move, movement from it? I mean, the you know the reality of twenty twenty was so grim for so many people involved in climate campaigning because it's not that everything ground to a halt, but it was really difficult doing what had become such an important part of the movement in 2019. And that was particularly true for young people because it was the emergence of Extinction Rebellion and the young climate activist movement in 2019 that really galvanized everybody. And we, we all began to think about it very differently. And mm. then 2020, the pandemic, things closed down. Nobody could get out there to do the work they were doing. That was particularly hard for young people. 
So I've been working a lot with young people since then and trying to find ways of supporting them as much as possible. But for me, funnily enough, it wasn't that bad a year from other perspectives. Business, for instance, just really got going in 2020. There was a yeah. year of companies that became much more engaged and active and ready to see more, not dramatic, but more radical change than might have been the case otherwise. So it wasn't all bad in 2020, but the book came at an interesting time in terms of helping people to see the role that they could have and the urgency that they needed to bring to that role, rather than just simply saying, yeah, well, it's COP26 at the end of 2021, everything will be okay. We'll just plug along at the same old rate. And my principal job in terms of getting the book out there is to say, stop thinking like that. You can't just plug along. We've got to just mm. move things up a gear all the time. Yeah, yeah, it's that slow, slow boiling frog, isn't yeah. it? That, that, yeah, yeah, it sure Which is, is. A- absolutely insane. So that I mean, that that's great. So, so tell us about you know the work that you're currently doing. I guess off the back of the book with, you know, Forum for the Future, and I know you've got this new, you know, this new kind of digital format of a, of a book and, and and videos rise up. So can you can you tell us a bit more about current work and and that project? Yeah, no, well that's been. That's been absolutely fascinating. And I've loved doing that over the last uh, nine months or so, because thinking about about this role that one might have with young people and and helping support them in what they're doing. One of the ideas that we came up with um, in the forum, working with a wonderful um, educational charity called Reboot the Future, was to think about doing a book, a digital book, which would invite them to think what would happen if young people were actually in the driving seat when it came to changing the dynamics of climate politics. So instead of this very laid back approach to things we got on them, what if young people injected that sense of urgency so that by 2025, we were actually on track to doing what we needed to do to prevent runaway climate change, which we're not on track to do at the moment. Mm -hmm. So it was an exercise in imagination, which is to say, imagine that in the next four or five years, young people are able to step into some of that gap and shift the dynamics, make this whole thing look very different. So I came up with the idea for a book to do that, looking back from 2025, and then working with a wonderful team of um, creative people who made the films. We then made five little five-minute films for each of the main characters in the book. And those films are just Wonderful. They're all through the perspective of what you might call young climate activists. They don't start out as climate activists, but in many respects, that's how they get to understand their agency, their role. Mm. And for me, this has been really liberating, thinking about things through that perspective. And we've just launched that um, uh, three weeks ago. So that's out and about and being well received. And we're hoping that we'll be able to build on that now in the run up to this uh, great big conference at the end of the year in Glasgow. Yeah, lovely, lovely, brilliant. I mean, gosh, yeah, yeah. I mean, fifty years as a campaigner. You know, I've got two questions really, which are really poignant to me. Have you have you ever got tired and just thought, oh, I'm just <laughs> going to give up. I'm just I'm just going to die quietly and, and and leave it. I mean, what, where, where were you with with that? I've never had that, and I am just massively grateful to whatever forces are out there that I've never I haven't ever felt that I've never wanted to give up or despaired of the possibility of change and I think there are 
I, I guess it's just, it's good fortune maybe that that's the way my spirit goes. But I think there are two parts to it. One is other people, because you know, Jarvis, this world, call it what you will, the sustainability world is full of just unbelievable people, just people full of the right kind of energy and the right kind of instincts and the right kind of empathy for other people. And every time you get a bit flat and, oh, God, this is hard work, there's this constant uplift from the people that we share this movement with. And that has sustained me so many times over the last few decades. Yeah. And the other thing is, is nature. You know, I'm, I'm out there. I find I derive a lot of sustenance and inspiration from the natural world. It's a critical part of who I am. It, again, makes it easier for me to do some of this work when things look a bit tough. So a combination of, of a wonderful community of, mm. of colleagues and the natural world itself has kind of allowed me to keep keep on going. Yeah, I, I love that, and yeah. I absolutely resonate with you on that. I mean, I, you know, you 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 you've been one of my, you know, personal kind of heroes actually, because you know you you were the person that I looked at, um, and and there weren't many people in your space, you know, when I was when I was looking at this, which was fourteen years ago, and now great, there's there's a big uprising. So, uh, but yeah. I really love to hear you say that because it's exactly the same for me. People are. People operate with heart, don't they? And, 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 and the gift that we get from nature is, well, that's the gift that's going to turn everything around, actually, once people remember that. that it gift. is. It is. It's so important. And I sometimes think that we're a bit too, what are we, a bit too constrained about that? We're a little bit, sometimes get a little bit geeky and technocratic and Agreed. kind of want to keep everything safe, whereas a bit of me is saying, okay, let's just stop all this right now and get out there and start hugging a few more trees, start being in nature with every part of our being rather than just looking at it from outside and saying, hmm, isn't nature looking good today? You know, we yeah. have to get a bit more visceral about this, a bit more grounded, a bit, I don't know what it is, more of, yeah. more of the mud between our toes, I think is what I would call for. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I'm, lo I'm loving that you're saying that. I mean, th th this, you know, I can feel in your voice and in your energy, there is this, this is constant stream of hope, but there must be something that makes you absolutely despair the most. Like what, 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 what is that after this 50 years of, of constant campaigning? What, what, what makes you despair the most? I honestly, Jarvis, it's just that the thing that makes me most worried is the, is the inertia in the system. And, and I don't want to get too heavy about this, but the system, which is based on this notion that societies progress and individuals get happier if everybody consumes more. And that, I'm, that's a bit of a shorthand version of how the global economy works, but it's not far off it. Mm. And there's a huge amount of vested interest in keeping that model of progress going. And when you really dig into this, we know that we can do amazing things to heal nature and stop runaway climate change and sort out pollution problems around plastics and all the rest. I, there are solutions to all of these things, literally. Yeah. Yeah. But unless we begin to rethink the model, the model of progress and growth, then those solutions are never going to be as effective as they should be. And I am, I'm not despairing, but I certainly am worried that we've made so little progress in getting people to think about the the deeper 
aspect of what transformation needs to look like. It's not just new policies in different areas. It's a rethink about us and our part in the world. And progress on that, pretty limited, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, agreed. I mean, we're definitely seeing we're definitely seeing pockets of, of light as uh, you know, wait, uh, as you as you mentioned earlier in business and in in communities and and with the youth. But but you're yeah. right. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's it's pretty pretty doled over by the the old. Yeah, models. and you can see that in all this stuff about build back better after the pandemic. What are, what are they doing to build back better? Well, they're going back to all the the stuff that kept the economy ticking over before the pandemic. So yeah, we're slow yeah. to learn the lessons here. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So what does give you hope? What, what, what gives you the most hope? I mean, thank you for going down that dark road with me, but I know you're, you know, you're, you're, you're full of um, energy around this subject. But so what, I know you've mentioned the youth, you've mentioned some businesses that are, that are looking at things, but for you, what, what gives you the most hope? Yeah, and that's, a, that's, such an important part of it, really. So I've mentioned young people. I'm, I'm just hugely excited about this, deeply inspired by what Greta Thunberg and other young champions have been doing. Um, I do think there's a lot more to be done with business. I know this isn't everybody's view. And sometimes they look at business and say, well, they're the enemy. So we don't want to be working with that particular source of energy. But I don't go with that. I think there's a lot more to be done there. I'm pretty <laughs> enthusiastic about technology. I mean, five years ago, if anybody had said, we can actually provide all the electricity the world needs from renewable electricity sources by 2030. If we want to, even five years ago, people would have thought you were mad. Now yeah. we can do this now. This is the foundation of everything else that we need to do. I'm not a techie. I'm not a kind of techno nut in this space. But boy, those technology innovations that are breaking out all around us are pretty amazing. And then I think there's this whole deeper side of of a growing number of people wanting to find more meaning in their lives, wanting to think differently about their part and their responsibility to their children. For some people, that's a completely secular thing. It's just not being content with how their lives are working. And for other people, it's more spiritual. There's a huge, for me, enormously important strand of mobilizing people with their spiritual beliefs and practices of the heart of what we're doing so all of these things if you look at it in the round it's it's quite a powerful combination yeah. and it's more powerful if you like than the voices of despair and hopelessness um it, it sometimes doesn't feel like that but it really is yeah lovely you've articulated that beautifully thank you so i've got a, i think just a, a bit of a bit of a history you you were awarded a cbe weren't you for all your efforts so it's good to see you've been recognised for your vital work. But did, did Prince Charles give it to you? I know he's very passionate about the environment. He is very passionate about the environment. Um, I think I was indeed conferred by the Prince of Wales. And it makes it... I, I shouldn't make light of these things. They, they all count. <laughs> it's all sort of part of the way in which the system operates. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it, was a, it was a privilege to get that. Yeah, well, I'm glad you did. It's, I think it's important for people, you know, like you to be to be recognised. Um, let, let me ask you something personal outside of kind of the day job. I mean, there probably isn't an outside for you of the day job. But how do you how do you try to live sustainably in your own life? I mean, what, what, what are the kind of nuggets of, of gold? <laughs> well, 
pretty uh, sort of reasonably good. I'm I'm not I don't feel a great guilty gap in my in in the way I live and the way I advocate for change. I I for instance don't have a car and I have a pretty good handle on what we should be eating and all of those things and over the years I've kind of got okay at that but I'd never kind of put that out there as a as a big thing partly because my carbon footprint prior to covid from all the international travel i was doing was completely horrendous and mm. that was the biggest problem i was up against the work i do with forum for the future with our offices in singapore and new york and so on i i just ended up with a horrendous kind of carbon footprint at the end of every year and to see that go to to zero literally in the last 15 months has been remarkable so i'm going to have to get a grip on that when things begin to look a little bit more like uh normal and um some of that old pattern of work comes back again uh, that'll be really important i i know i need to do that and i yeah. know i need to think more about how i reconcile some of those aspects of my working life with what we now all should be doing in the world today yeah lovely lovely well, i mean you must have still been you know, running and communicating with those those different entities around the world yeah. through, through video conferencing. That so, is true. Yeah, yeah. And so that worked reasonably well, although it is not the same, Jarvis. I'm going to just lay yeah. it on the line here. It is yeah. not the same as being in the same place with them, being able to hug people, being able to go to the bar afterwards and have a, you know, proper time and opportunity to share things at a deeper level. I mean, there's one thing about all this Zoom and stuff. When a meeting ends, a meeting ends, bang, it's gone, and that's it. And you sort of get on and do the next thing, which is okay, but it's not the be-all and end-all of yeah. working relationships, that's for sure. Yeah, no, agreed, agreed. Yeah, but that, and a valid point, but thank you. So we always ask this question. I hope you don't cringe when I ask you, but what would be, what would be the one tip you could give to our listeners uh, to, to live more sustainably today? I'm full of admiration for the way Greta Thunberg answers that question because everybody asks her that. And she says she's not, she refuses to answer, basically. <laughs> and okay. so I'm just using her now. I'm channeling my inner Greta. Yeah. She says, look, you're perfectly capable of reading the same stuff I read, of looking at the world the way I look at it. You can, you can get a handle on this stuff for yourself. And the only ask I have of you in that regard is be curious find out about why these things are now so pressing, why we know we ought to be doing more in our own lives. Um, and once you get to that point, uh, making those inquiries for yourself, doing a bit of digging, asking some mates what it is that really works for you, those next steps you have to take do present themselves pretty easily. Let's be honest, they're all there for the having, if you like, and for the celebrating, because it, do it does still make a difference that we're all doing what we can. Uh, Jennifer, I, I've got a big grin at this end because I love that answer. <laughs> I love it. And, you know, thank you ever so much. We, we are at the end of our, our time, but it's been an utter joy for me to reconnect with you. And you are even more of a legend than you were when we started this conversation. And I really admire your work. And thank you for joining us on the My Green podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, I know. It's been a great pleasure for me.
So that's it. Another episode of My Green Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and gained some really useful tips on ethical living. If you did, please subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcast and be sure to give us a five-star rating so that others wanting a greener lifestyle can find us. And thank you to our guest, Jonathan Porritt. We'll put links to his website in the show's notes. Follow us on Joe Wood Official and at My Green Pod. For more tips and the latest ethical news, go to mygreenpod.com or email us hello at mygreenpod.com. See you next time. See you next time. Yay! My Green Podcast was presented by Jarvis Smith, Katie Hill and Joe Wood. It was produced by Mike Hansen for Pop People Productions. Music by The Phoenix Rose.